having busyness as an alternative to meaning and consumerism as an alternative to worthy purpose and cynicism becomes a pass for sophistication and entertainment and or drug abuse becomes an alternative to reality because reality seems too difficult. So we need each other. We need the commons if we're going to be able to sustain what we know about a connected world, about having to make complex choices that are not easy and aren't always perfect, and um, having to give up that, um, you know, I'm a good person. Well, yeah, I'm also a complicit person. So how do we, you know, how do we hold that together? And we only hold it together by being together. And so we need communities of imagination and uh, comfort and challenge and commitment and able to hold it for the long haul. That's Sharon Delos Parks. And this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. It's good to be with you again. I'm your host, Joel DeYoung, and convener of The Conversations. The Emerging Future Podcast is the place where we get to learn from the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. And today, we get to talk to Sharon Dalos Parks who is a senior fellow at the Whidbey Institute in Clinton, Washington. She's also a co-author of Common Fire, Leading Lives of Commitment in a Complex World. I have been hugely impacted by that book, Common Fire, and Sharon and I talk quite a bit about that one. She's also author of Big Questions, Worthy Dreams, Mentoring Emerging Adults in Their Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Faith, it's now republished in its 10th anniversary edition. She also wrote, Leadership Can Be Taught, A Bold Approach for the Complex World. So I got to talk to Sharon in her beautiful home on Whidbey Island. And we had a wonderful time together. And we got to talk about pretty much her life's work, which is in and around this idea of the comments, which she describes as, a shared life within a manageable frame. So when referencing physical space, these are places, the commons, are places where we all come together. So they could be either planned or unplanned meetings with others, but these commons are vital for our vibrant society. So the modern commons, you know, takes many shapes and forms and, you know, it may look like Starbucks or a local park or the baseball game or the supermarket. But this book, Common Fire and Sharon, explain how integral these spaces are in creating a flourishing society because they create a sense of trust and a framework for understanding ourselves and other with a capital O. She talks about that too as she and her co-authors were instrumental in really 
um, developing that concept of other. So these outer landscapes of the commons are essential to developing our inner landscapes and our capacities, which are required for all humanity to kind of lead within this complexity. You know, on, on behalf of the collective, on, the, on the behalf of the collective well-being of others. But this, uh, this elemental placemaking, the soul-shaping fabric of our human society, it's really at a premium in the world today. And our tension is hijacked, our places are hijacked, and it's really creating a deep hunger to recover and, and reimagine the new commons. And although Common Fire, it was first published in 1996, it really carries an enormous relevance today, you know, as the velocity of change has accelerated, you know, really leaving us with a gap in our responsiveness and our understanding of what's going on and, and having this gap in direction about where we're going. And Sharon just does an incredible job of articulating so elegantly, you know, what's actually really at the core of the Emerging Future podcast, which is about being present and courageous enough to lean into the complexity and the unknown of that gap and, and to wait expectantly for transformative moments that surprise us and, and give us a deep sense of where we are and, and what's needed to move forward on behalf of others in the future. So th this was such a, a pleasant encounter and exchange with Sharon. I'm so grateful for it, and I hope you really enjoy it. Here is Sharon Delos Parks. Oh, this is great. So Monday morning, I get to get in my car, and I get to drive straight out of the city and get on a ferry and come over here to your beautiful home. So, on Whidbey Island. On Whidbey Island. Yeah, um, and I feel like this conversation has come, it's coming home in a way because of where this idea kind of came from and that conversation that we had at the Whitby Institute back in December and you were around that table and you shared a little bit of your story at that time. And, and I was amazed that this guy I didn't know across the table <laughs> knew <laughs> something of my work. Amazing. Well, it's become your work has uh, become a framework for uh, you know our our family um, in the way that we kind of view our place in the world, and especially you know how we 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 approach these spaces, especially in our urban environments that are are common and for everybody. You know, our project you know really started out just pulling weeds you know, in the woods to kind of clean up a place that was filled with garbage and encampments and a lot of activity that wasn't conducive for family enjoyment or recreation within, you know, a park space. And nor for the wider public. Nor for anybody. It wasn't welcoming. And, you know, so it was like, how do we engage? And th the mechanism by which we engaged was through the Green Seattle Partnership. You know, they said, hey, we need volunteers. We need people to go in and help clean up our woods. So... It was, it was, um, it was delightful to have the parks department give us the thumbs up and then show up at our house with, you know, a bin full of, you know, almost $3,000 worth of tools and, and say, all right, go for it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but it might have also felt a little daunting. Yeah, it, it did. It felt daunting. And, 
and with the work of creating a common space it's it's these incremental you know gains at least that's what we've come to understand which is you have to stay consistent and persistent and and sort of let it evolve and and then people start to resonate with it and, and see what's going on and then they become involved and it's been really interesting too to see just volunteers you know how when you're talking about like doing a project with volunteers you're you better have a vision <laughs> to get those people to come back. But it wasn't until, you know, five years into this when, you know, we came across your book, Common Fire. And for me, that I mean, I, it was a page turner. It was like, wow, somebody, you know, has, has gone through this and um, really articulated um, the framework for developing common space and why it's really needed. So... I wanted to talk to you more about that book, um, where it came from, and kind of um, your, your journey along the way, because I'm sure it's introduced you to a lot of people in a lot of different places and a lot of new stories. It has. It has. I'd like yeah. to hear some of those, too. Um, so just take me back to um, your, your interest in... Um, where it all began? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, where, where did this all begin? <laughs> okay. Well, this um, particular book, which is co-authored um, with my now husband, Larry Dalos, and with Cheryl and Jim Keene, um, I was at Harvard, uh, t and I was at that point teaching. I had done my doctoral work there, and my doctoral work had been looking at uh, what happens, particularly in the 20-something years of life, and particularly when people uh, engage in higher education, and what happens to faith and meaning and purpose. And so I had had a uh, way of approaching that that was, um, that was big, um, that I looked at faith as meaning-making, something all human beings do, and not just something that religious folk have. And uh, that was because um, I think when I was a little girl, I came from a family where including everybody was important. And one day I was um, at school, and it was grade school, and there was this insidious little practice of arriving in school and finding a little white envelope on your desk inviting you to a birthday party. But only mm -hmm. some students got that and others didn't. And it had never bothered me. I guess I managed to get invited. But at recess, I was playing jump rope. And I was standing in line. And I overheard two girls who had not been invited to the party, one of whom had been severely burned and scarred as a very young child. And um, I heard her say to the other girl, uh, well, we know we'll all get invited to Sharon's party. And I get no credit for that, but um, my mother would not have, it would not have occurred to her to invite only some of the girls in my class to my birthday party. Mm -hmm. Everyone was invited. And so when I started looking at um, what happens to God when people go to college and looking <laughs> at faith and how we understand, I was um, attracted to then work that was being done that defined faith in very broad terms as 
human making, uh, human meaning making, of embracing all that's most ultimate and intimate, that we human beings, um, one of the things we have in common is we all make meaning. And whether we do that in religious or other terms, uh, we're all trying to make sense of <clears throat> what is happening. So having um, done uh, a book, um, Big Questions, Worthy Dreams, um, I was then um, teaching, and I was having supper with Cheryl and Jim Keene, and as we sat down in a soup and salad restaurant uh, in Harvard Square, uh, Cheryl said, I want to do research with you. And I am still surprised that my response to her was immediate, that I knew what I wanted to research. And I was very much on the back burner because I was busy with lots of other commitments. But I knew as a professor at Harvard I needed to do research. And I knew that I wanted to understand a particular kind of meaning-making, and that was how do people make meaning in ways that yield a commitment to, um, to justice, to the well-being of all. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Jim joined us and said he wanted to be involved too, and the three of us then began what we called the Commitment Project because... There was this sense that we were moving into the 21st century. We were anticipating that move. Mm-hmm. And that um, we were going to need a kind of citizenship that was um, able to be uh, committed, as we began to talk about it, committed to the common good. And uh, that we were all social scientists and um, teaching and researching and um, we needed to look at citizens who already exemplified that kind of commitment and practice and find out how they became that way and how they sustain it. Mm -hmm. And that was the birth of what became the book Common Fire, Leading Lives of Commitment in a Complex World. Were you already talking about common good? Was this something that you... uh were discussing amongst each other or was it was it something that you came up with right at that moment and then um actually we came up with it much later um we were we were talking about a kind of a commitment to well-being a commitment to mm-hmm. justice we began to realize that was commitment to the common good okay and then we realized that um anyone listening to a commitment to the common good who's really thoughtful would say who's common good yeah who is common good yeah well and everyone has a different notion of the common good or can and so uh we backed into the image behind the concept Mm -hmm. and that's the image of the commons and um that's ancient in human experience that whether it's the crossroads of the village or whether it's a grand plaza in a Latin country, um, <clears throat> it's a place where um, human beings have met formally and informally um, as a species throughout time. And because we're very social creatures that gather, disperse, and gather again. And so the practice of the commons became a kind of anchoring um, practice as well as concept 
for us. And then we began to look at the classic forms of that, and that began to point us to the New England green where everyone could pasture a cow, but around that green an ecology of institutions Mm. that were from a simpler time, the schoolhouse, the town hall, the Mm -hmm. place of worship, the pub, the newspaper office, and so on. And if we think about our lives now, the challenge of our emerging future is that um, what was manageable in living in that kind of sense of commons, and there are many other forms we can talk about, but um, now we live in a new commons that's global planetary in scope and infinitely more complex, diverse, and morally challenging. And so the gap between Mm -hmm. how we've learned to live on one scale and now what's asked of us is really the passion that drives the book Common Fire. Because we're, we don't ha- we don't gather in these these common places. They they're not they're not what they used to be, and and if it is, it's sort of a unique thing. I ask people um, when I'm teaching. I ask uh, where, if ever, have you experienced a commons, mm-hmm. and um, invite people to think about their childhoods first, but also now, mm-hmm. and um, people are find it possible to think about maybe it was the school when they were growing up maybe it was the church some people grew up in a cul-de-sac where there was kind of sense of people played together and Mm -hmm. so forth but um it gets thinner and thinner as people get younger and younger when i ask that and then it comes up well is our you know, our digital devices, the commons, and there's a big question, does the practice of the commons really need to be grounded some way in reality? But people think of other places. Some people think of going to Starbucks. Some people think mm-hmm. of going to watch a major league game. Uh, some people think of their place of worship. Some people think of certain kinds of schools mm-hmm. as a place where people come together with a sense of um, both a shared purpose, shared life. We Mm -hmm. say that the commons is a sense of a shared life within a manageable frame. And we're all now stuck with an unmanageable frame, but we need the micro experiences of commons, if you will, if to have any sense of being able to live in this larger planetary commons. So Mm -hmm. when you have taken on a park space Mm -hmm. and cleaning that up. And isn't it interesting that people have been drawn to do that with you? Mm -hmm. You know, there's something in us that does want those places where we can gather and have a sense of shared belonging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it brings out the best in everybody. The one, the one thing, the differentiator between some of the examples that you mentioned, like parklands, is that th- there's no cost. And that's a big one, because the commons in practice is often um, imperfectly practiced. It's gated in some way. Some can be there, some can't. And wherever you have an admission fee, that's a kind of gate to mm-hmm. the commons. And so our public places... Uh, parks and um, 
walking trails and um, sometimes playing fields. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, more and more we're having to ask about things like um, the commons is uh, often centered in food and water. And so ponds and lakes and um, uh, places where um, we have access to food together. Mm-hmm. Um, marketplaces, there's some buying and selling there, but it's a part of, um, and like everyone, the classic green where everyone could pasture a cow. I mean, that was about survival and sustenance. Mm. And so thinking about those places that draw us at those very primal dimensions of our lives where our um, well-being is dependent, uh, we come together. And Mm -hmm. that is um, vital for a vibrant society. And the more we are trapped in very individualistic pods, or now we're talking about bubbles, Mm -hmm. um, the more we're eroding that very uh, primary essential dimension of a shared commons, shared public life. Mm-hmm. I've, and I've heard um, just in the last week um, three conversations that I've had, people have said, I'm, I'm off faith, Facebook. Mm. I, I can't do it anymore. And it's be, and it, they, there's this angst around the conversation. They're, they're um, frustrated with the lack of depth and their mm-hmm. relationships, right. um, that people can um, say things and not be responsible for it. And it's like they're saying, no, I want something real in my life. I want I want real relationships, and that's where I'm going to focus my energy. And it's interesting that we talk about the importance of FaceTime. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly it can serve, Skype and so forth can serve things for grandparents and so forth that don't know otherwise have but we're learning that when people are actually in the same place talking with each other Mm -hmm. that over time like our heartbeats can get in sync and so forth which isn't going to happen over facebook and the depth that you're talking about is um, a hunger that is not being realized through that particular medium even with this podcast like there are some opportunities for conversations with to have with people that aren't um, geographically in this area, but I'm resistant to that because I don't want to try and have a deep, meaningful conversation without actually looking somebody in the eye for real. <laughs> and sitting here at a common table. At a common table, <laughs> yeah. yes, and yeah. and being in your house, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're you're inviting me in. There's something so much deeper just being together in the same room. Um, it, yeah, so there's this. Going back to these, it's going back, or we can't go back. Right. I don't like to say that, but it's like some of these things that have lost meaning because of the way that we've created our built environment and and our our communities. You know, they don't foster um, the, this common space anymore, so it becomes kind of a, a rare and unique thing. Like when people come out and they they pull weeds with us on the weekend you know it's like wow this is really interesting you know this is great to be out here and we're all doing this and it's so basic 
And it feels then like a common care and common mm -hmm. work and the opportunity to connect with people you otherwise wouldn't connect with. And there are some places that are beginning to get this consciousness. In Portland, you may be aware that there are intersections in neighborhoods that are laid out on a grid where they've taken a place where two streets come together and have actually painted a circle and then um, put up like a mini library on one corner and mm -hmm. a little tea shop on another, and you know, just informal, uh, not a really a business, but a tea corner and another place and so forth. So that, and then they have community dances there or other kinds of celebrations. And it's a recovery of recognizing the hunger for commons. Portland. They're always a little bit ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> Seattle has done some important things like, um, you know, preserving Seattle Center and mm -hmm. keep struggling with the question, how do we do this? Um, what does the world, old world's fairgrounds end up being? Mm -hmm. And how do we, and, and recognizing that there are other forms, um, for instance, our art museums and so forth right. are a part of the commons. How does art become accessible to everyone mm -hmm. and not just uh, people who can afford to have a Picasso in their home? Um, how, how do we work out this sense of a shared life within a manageable frame? that cuts across class, um, other forms of diversity. Yeah, Mary and I were just talking about artists this morning, like how do we create a, a world where artists actually can make a living, you know? Like we need to support those people who are the prophets, who are giving us, you know, information and signs on, you know, what we're supposed to be doing, but it doesn't fit within a corporate framework or, you know, a traditional. Career. That's an enormously important uh, point. Um, it was um, been said that artists are the ones most needed in our global village. <clears throat> we think of them as prophetic, but they don't have a crystal ball any more than the rest of us do. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> that artists at their best are um, they are harbingers of the future because they are looking profoundly paying exquisite attention at what is happening in the present when others are looking through the spectacles of yesterday. And I feel like that's what you're caring about in these podcasts. How do we pay exquisite attention to what's happening in the present rather than looking through the spectacles of yesterday? Mm -hmm. And that's our only way to um, being attuned to a future that's always emergent, mm -hmm. but which is the velocity of change has been accelerated so much mm -hmm. that there's a gap between how we as human beings are um, so far able to respond and what is actually upon us now that is both um, marvelous and dangerous. Yeah, we have to build the capacity to be here and now and kind of hold past, present, and future all at once. Um, you know, I'll, I'll post the notes for this on my website, Lyman, which comes from liminal space, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. a, a liminal space or a liminal moment is where you have this sense of deep time, 
Yes. Where you have past, present, and future all merging at once, and it's a moment of clarity and emergence where you're able to cross over the threshold and see what's next. Right. It becomes a transformative moment mm-hmm. when you can do that. Yeah. So thinking about the, the these ways to um, kind of recreate or co-create, you know, commons, what are the... What are kind of the pillars for, you know, the, the commons? And, and as we're moving, you know, into the future, you know, what are, these, what are these pillars that we need to kind of keep in mind? Well, we had the privilege of being funded by the Lilly Endowment, and we were able to interview uh, over 100 people, who, primarily 100 people, and then we had some additional interviews for comparison. And those 100 people uh, fit our profile of what we were looking for, people who were able to be committed to the common good when they aren't naive about the complexity, the diversity, and the moral challenges of our time. And so we would ask them uh, a set of questions, and we found wonderful clues to how people become committed to the common good, but there were only three that held across all 100 people. And these 100 people represent essentially the demographic makeup of our society in terms of families of origin, and there was a 10% international component. And the three findings were, um, we should probably talk about each of them in a little bit of depth, Um, One was that someplace, somewhere, sometime that people had developed enough sense of trust in life that they can wade into the complexity. And um, it's important to learn some mistrust (laughs) that's healthy, Mm -hmm. Um, but there has to be this capacity to have some confidence that you move into life and you'll be met in ways you can handle at least Mm -hmm. and so one so i ask people you know where if ever did you experience trust and surprise surprise um most people many people will talk about family and they will talk about particular experiences but uh, some people didn't grow up in trustworthy families. Mm-hmm. And what we find among those are people who tell us about school teachers or aunts and uncles or grandparents or neighbors. Um, some one or ones who really anchored a sense of trust in their life. So one of the things we want to ask about our public life is, is it easy and natural and common for our young to become people who have a capacity for trust Mm -hmm. and who are trustworthy themselves. You're a parent, so you are of young children, so you probably think about this every day more Mm -hmm. or less, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And how do you think about being a trustworthy parent? Well, um, Staying true to my word, yeah, you know, um, giving them you know basic needs and things that they want, predictable patterns, Mm -hmm. things they can count on, Mm -hmm. things yeah. So, um, and then you hope as your child moves into a wider circle 
that they encounter other people mm -hmm. who are trustworthy for them. And um, all of us have challenges to trust, but we want for the trust to supersede the mistrust mm -hmm. and for those relation, that, the relationship between the two to be clear. The second thing we found was that everyone, someplace, somewhere, sometime, who could be committed to the common good, had learned that they have power and that they could make a difference. Um, one story, a woman who, when she was nine years old, was determined her family was going to build a swimming pool in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> the family was not enamored with this idea initially. But she made it happen. And um, that was absolutely pivotal for her knowing that she could make a difference in mm -hmm. the world. She manifested what was in her mind right. in reality. And it came to being, yes. And she was nine years old, and she could make it happen. Um, a man we talked with who's African-American, and he has been a highly honored dean of a major institution, and he talked about how his um, mother would tell him to go repair the back steps, and he wouldn't know how to do that as a boy. And she would just say, oh, you'll figure it out, and mm -hmm. so forth. And he kind of learned he could figure out and do things. So not um, particularly necessarily hugely dramatic, um, but one way or another learning that one could be in life and could have power and mm -hmm. could make a difference with that. And so learning that, um, at least uh, by the time one is a late adolescent, is enormously important mm -hmm. um, to a sense of self, to a sense of identity, to a sense of how life works. And how do you think we're, we're, we're doing with that piece of it? Well, I think it's really uneven. I think that um, a lot of our devices encourage passivity and consumption mm -hmm. versus creating and doing. Um, I think that, on the other hand, that there's lots of opportunities uh, for some kids uh, in terms of sports activities and other kinds of opportunities where one learns that you know, one's an agent that has an right. effect. So um, so I think it's really uneven. And I think that we see a lot of just consumption, but um, we also see invitations to doing. Mm -hmm. And being alert to that is enormously important. For adolescent kids, um, well, even what you're talking about and going into the park and cleaning it up, that's an act of agency. And yeah, we, and in the public <clears throat> realm, I mean, you know, I, I had no experience of doing that within like the public realm or working with a public agency in, until, until we did that. So for me, it was kind of this whole, you know, mm -hmm. um, the door opens and now, hey, look, as a citizen, I have much more influence over what happens if I pay attention and provide, you know, some energy towards this. Exactly. And you're using the word citizen versus consumer. Hmm. And so what a citizen has agency in it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in our society, one of the things that we're doing that disturbs me quite a lot is um, people who are really engaged at 
uh, sort of obvious public levels. Um, we call them uh, po- politicians, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of gotten a bad name. And we are unfairly dismissive of people who care for our political life, and it erodes the practice of political life. And on the other hand, if they're not holding office, then we refer to someone as an activist. And it's kind of a way of defining and subtly dismissing, well, they're an activist. And they're an activist, and I admire that, but I'm something else. Mm -hmm. And so I like to not use the word activist, but to use the word an engaged citizen. Because I think we have to recover the word citizen mm-hmm. and its meaning and significance and that it's a role, that it's a invitation, it's a quality of life, mm-hmm. it's an identity. Yeah. That everyone has. That everyone has, of course, unless they're an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're having a very big public conversation about what does it mean to be a citizen, but it's in a very narrow frame. So we find ourselves saying, oh, we're deporting this person, and oh, they're really a contributor to the community. And and then we're confused about what it means to be a citizen and Mm -hmm. how we want really positive pathways to citizenship Mm -hmm. for our young, for those who are new to our shores, it's a richer conversation mm-hmm. than um, who's dangerous and who's safe. Right. So a positive pathway to citizenship. One, the first step is establish trust, a sense of trust. The second is agency. The third one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along here. The third one, I have to say that when we started the research, we knew from our own studies um, elsewhere that we would find trust in agency. Mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed that we didn't have the third one mm-hmm. in hand. But what I most trust when I do research are the findings I wasn't looking for. And to be curious about that is the you know, pearl of great price. So I... Um, I'm embarrassed, and I can find harbingers of it in earlier work, but um, what we discovered was that among all hundred people, uh, someplace, somewhere, sometime, they had had what we came to call a constructive or transforming encounter with otherness. And um, it's interesting, um, we started this work in, in the 80s and published in the early 90s, and um, the word other wasn't used so much as it is now. We now talk about the other, you know, capital O mm-hmm. and print, you know, quotation marks. But um, the sense of otherness we defined as Uh, encounter with someone outside my own tribe Mm -hmm. and we all need tribe Um, we all need communities of belonging in which we know who we are we know what to expect it gives us a kind of freedom it gives us at homeness it gives us a sense of how to act and behave but the gifts of good tribe can become the sins of tribalism Mm. 
And uh, what we find is that um, a way of defining other is we have to first define tribe. And the most rigorous definition of tribe, I think, is that tribe exists whenever I would tolerate for them what I would not tolerate for my own. Mm. It's a pretty stiff definition. Mm -hmm. And when we meet across those boundaries, um, it can be transformative. Um, sometimes we meet in a way that we just decide that this person who I thought was really different from me, oh, it turns out they're really nice, and I kind of assimilate them into my own tribe. Mm -hmm. But it's more profound when I still recognize that they are different from me. Mm -hmm. But what we discover if we have the meeting that really matters the conversation that matter, really matters, the recognition that really matters, is that I get it, that we may be different, but the other suffers as I suffer, mm -hmm. yearns as I yearn, cares for my children as I care for my own. Those things that are at the core of the best of our humanity when I get that, or maybe even recognizing the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of all of us, as Susan Neeson said, and that the other shares the vulnerabilities and the limitations that, um, that I share, that then us and them can become we, mm. the ground of commitment to the common good rather than just to me and mine. And what we're all recognizing, I think, increasingly as um, setting our society at risk is this sense of separate tribes, separate bubbles, separate divisions, and not meeting each other in common conversation where we get it, mm -hmm. that we all share so much more that is um, profound and at core of what matters for all of us. Mm. And it doesn't mean there aren't profound differences. The, what I began to realize why this is so important is that when I get it that the other suffers the same as I do, that that's the experience of compassion the capacity to suffer with. And that gives rise to what I call um, the conviction of possibility. When I get it that this other is suffering the same way I would suffer in those circumstances, what tends to come up is there has to be a way. There has to be a way that they don't have to suffer this way. A conviction of possibility. There has to be a way. And that becomes the courage to risk. Mm -hmm. That fuels the courage to risk. There has to be a way fuels the courage to risk, to take some new action that can begin to shift what is causing the suffering um, that is the unnecessary suffering. And that's the stretch of soul 
that is being asked of us in our time. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. And then it's not so much of a an egocentric way of trying to do something to change the world. It's actually rooted in... Encounter. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the encounter and in the shared commonness. Yeah. The other thing I was making a connection with when you were saying that is we're talking about, you know, common places, right? And those are really the environments that help us get to really what you're talking about is the core of, of where we need to go. And that's the shared commonness. Is that what you call common fire? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is that the common fire? (laughs) That's great. Yes. That we, um, thank you for that because we've thought of common fire well, I guess in that in that way too, we we think about it as that we human beings have been wired as a species to gather around a fire, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the but it is also it kindles. It, it you can use common fire in the sense that we all have the capacity to have our fire kindled on behalf of the welfare of others as well mm-hmm. as our own. And what we begin to see is it's not an either-or. That when there is a healthy commons, I benefit from that hugely. Mm-hmm. Uh, call it, um, you know, a kind of generous self-interest, mm-hmm. but it's uh, enlightened self-interest, We I guess we usually say. Or mutual reciprocity. Yeah. Yeah, that that it's not like you clean up that park and you don't get anything out of it. Right. You know, you're creating something for many, many others, but it's also of huge benefit to you mm-hmm. and to your to children. Play there. Yeah, I get to walk there. Mm-hmm. Right, and you do encounter people you wouldn't otherwise encounter, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's not like you have a deep conversation with everyone you. Mm-hmm. Um, you see there, but you're aware that there are other families. You're aware that you're a part of a larger fabric of life. Mm-hmm. You're, um, and sometimes, you know, your kid starts playing with another kid and then the two parents start talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And then you find out either you both work in the same place and didn't know it, or you begin to find out, Oh, they're a really different family than we are, but Oh, mm-hmm. they really seem to love their kid. And, so off you go. And we all love this uh, space together. Yeah. And and we can share it. Right. Yeah, I love that. There's some spontaneity in there. You know, it's it allows for these interactions with other. Right. And it um, we sort of underscore that the commons provides for both formal and informal forms of meeting. So mm-hmm. everyone might meet for a concert on the common, for example. Um, Music, art, as we mentioned, is an important part of drawing people together as well as food and water. And, um, but then at that concert or around that concert, you might meet someone informally or there might be someone that you already know that you haven't seen for a while that you bump into and Mm -hmm. meet and and it strengthens that, you know, incipient bond that's already... Uh, in place from another time, but makes it stronger for the future. 
And it's sort of, it starts to expand your, your perspective on um, your connection with people, with place, and, and then um, the ideas and the, the tentacles start to go out further and you start to realize that, you know, there's, there's these systems that we're involved in and um, it, it gives you that context of, okay, I'm here, but um, I'm affected and in relationship with all these other systems. One of the things that um, was has become increasingly important to me was that as we move into our adulthood, that it's so vitally important that we learn critical thought, that we can ask why and is that true and on what basis do we know that and so on. But it's equally important in today's world that we learn connective thought. Hmm. And the commons helps us make connections. It's an expression of connections. So the learning to connect the dots is one of the biggest challenges that I think we have in facing the gap between unprecedented challenges now in our world Mm -hmm. and our human capacity. And that connective imagination becomes vital for us. Oh, I love that, connective imagination. Can you talk a little bit more about imagination? Um, well, actually, that's another chapter in the book. Um, <laughs> that, you recall this. <laughs> that uh, we, we, we've talked about trust and agency and the vital importance of encounter with otherness, and then we've touched on that there are, uh, fourth chapter is on habits of mind that are really important. One is to be able to take the perspective of another person. Another is to be able to think systemically and connect the dots. But then the fifth chapter is about um, imagination and the importance of the images that um, take up lodging in us. Mm. And um, the imagination has to be distinguished from mere fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, you know, fantasy land is wonderful. Um, but um, the work of the uh, imagination as really the highest power of the human mind is the capacity to... Um, create reality, create meaning. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're all dependent upon the images available to us. And um, those can be auditory, they can be visual, we tend to be a highly visual culture, but they can be kinesthetic, they can take many different forms. But the images, the stories that we live by Mm -hmm. are, um, are, the glue, if you will, that um, hold us together. And the one of the pieces of work in our time is uh, what is going to be a worthy story um, for human beings in terms of who we are, why we're here, what matters, what doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And um, that's big work that's up for us at this time. And what we found was that um, there were images that were um, very important to people, often embedded in a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some experience that stays with them over time and provides an anchoring image of um, what life is about. So one young woman... uh, 
one girl as a child experienced her going with her mother to vote at a place where there were also African Americans trying to vote. Mm. And um, they were all being given a reading test. And when it came her mother's term, time, her mother was white, and her mother insisted on being given the reading test, um, even though the people monitoring the voting um, didn't require it and then didn't want her to read it. Mm-hmm. And she insisted, and she said her mother was not anyone we would think of as an activist, but she uh, watched her mother, and it made her a little nervous because everyone got really quiet. And as a child, she was wondering what was going on and so forth, but her mother stood there and insisted on reading, read it, and then voted. And that story, that image, was anchored in her forever. Mm -hmm. And she saw that as a part of why she became committed to the common good. That's amazing. So when you talk about images, it's not not just... um it's not just a symbol or a, symbol or, yeah, yeah, or a, a logo. logo. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about an experience that gets imprinted on the person. Right. And for you, it was the birthday yeah, cards. Yeah, right. That, that was the image right. that you held within your childhood that yeah. brought you to the work. Um, and almost without knowing it, you know, we're, right. we're made up of multiple stories, mm-hmm. images, and so forth that in, influence us. Um, and it's which ones get a grip and really take hold and have power over time. So one of the questions that I occasionally ask is, what images have authority in your life? Right. Hmm. That's really good. Um. I, this past weekend, we had you know, a work party out in the woods, and my two sons were standing next to me. We had we circled up in the beginning, and everyone was introducing themselves, and so my a little ritual, yeah, which is a form of image, you know, yeah. Okay, right, that's uh-huh. great. They int- introduced themselves. Well, Orion introduced himself and said, "I, um, I'm Orion, and." I live here, and I've been doing work in these woods all my life. Uh, uh. And and then River, who's a year younger, said, yeah, I'm River, and I live here, and I've been doing work in these woods for 10 years. Uh, uh. And it was like, I was so proud of oh, that. Oh, yes, and your father's heart just yeah. sang. <laughs> but there's a tension in that, too, because, you know, Later that day, you know, we're on the couch and Ryan says, can, can we do something else on a Saturday? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, yeah. working in the woods is fine, but, you know, can we ever do anything else? And, and it's this balance that, you know, as parents, we're trying to hold, like, because we are trying to give them that story. And yeah. they have that story. Yeah. You know, right. and... The, and that they have freedom on work party days where they get to run. Yeah. They're basically unmonitored for yeah. about three hours because, yeah. you know, we're shepherding volunteers, you know, through the woods and doing what have you. And they get to, and so many people come up and there's all this energy. And, and 
Well, and that is huge because one of the things we pick up when we talk to people about the commons is they talk about how they would go out and just ramble and play for a whole day and come in for dinner if they had mm -hmm. to. And more and more people feel there aren't places where their children can do that. And so that you're creating a place where for three hours they're sort of running and mm -hmm. you're not watching them every minute and you can trust that they're okay is a big gift mm. to all of us that um, you're creating a place where that can happen. I just hope they don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're taking some risk. Right. Then you probably have given them some boundaries about how far they can go and mm -hmm. and how much time and you know you're kind of aware and and all of that but but you're creating range for them mm -hmm. well thinking about you know you put this book out in the world right you do all this mm -hmm. research what, what was the response um the response has been um it has, it's been an appreciated book, and we published it 20 years ago, and mm -hmm. it's still in print, and it's still relevant, Which, but we intended that. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't realize, I think, fully, we couldn't, how very relevant it would be to the moment in which we're now living. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, the response has been uh, some, uh, like yourself, parents have said it, feels like it gives them really good guidelines for what they are hoping for. But it's also really been used um, for the notion of the commons has been used in ways we wouldn't have particularly anticipated. For instance, um, at the airport in Seattle, mm -hmm. when new building was done in the building that's the office building, it's my understanding that there's been design done so that employees who are working there have a common space that mm -hmm. they're able to come into. Um, the uh, Swedish hospital in Issaquah, um, when they were doing their design work, they've um, arranged things so that the nursing um, people have a kind of commons design for how right. they for how they do their work and um the there's a new place in seattle <clears throat> that's called the um atlas work base and they've created a place they call the square mm -hmm. in that um and there are um, there's a learning center at um, notre dame in the business school that's the learning commons in other words it has animated, it's been one of the forces in animating um, an imagination of the commons mm -hmm. that has been able to meet what I would say is a deeper hunger for the commons that sometimes people don't even know that they want. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's over-commercialized to think that a mall is a commons doesn't entirely work because the the gate is that you're there to buy. But interestingly, um, some seniors go there to walk for exercise because it's a safe space where right. they can do that, so it does get some multi-use. Um, and I think it's been informing for many people around particularly the peace, not only of the commons, but this encounter with otherness, mm. that it's... Uh, so core 
to whether or not we're going to be able to have the capacity to create a truly humane, vibrant culture mm -hmm. as we move forward. That that is the piece that um, I think it's challenging to us, mm -hmm. but it's also evocative and it's a lure. It, you know, it's a lure to, um, okay, how can we make that happen? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, we, we kind of talked about this before, but it's, it's, there's a common space, and that's what you described mm -hmm. as like when somebody's building something, you know, they take this concept and they design a space around it. But then you take the, the idea one step further, and you're really talking about human capacity, right. and you're talking about development. Exactly. And, and so, the, and this is the work that you moved into. Right. Which, which is leadership. Right. right. We now, um, my husband and I are senior fellows at the Whidbey Institute, but we also um, do work that we describe <clears throat> uh, under the rubric of leadership for the new commons. So what does, these things don't happen just by happenstance. Mm -hmm. How do we become conscious of what is now needed and develop the capacity to um, foster a new imagination and create new practice, uh, whether it's in a business context or a education context or a neighborhood context or city planning or working at um, international policy. My husband, Larry Delos, is very deeply committed to the conversation relative to climate change and to the environment upon which we all depend. We can think of that as really our grounded commons at mm -hmm. this point in time, the, mm -hmm. our planet and the well-being of the planet is absolutely essential to anything else we want to do. And so how do we bring the imagination of the commons to that scale. Mm -hmm. And what happened in Paris was, around climate change, was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And it took years to bring that about, but that there could be such a conversation across otherness, mm -hmm. <laughs> across tribal, national, international boundaries. Um, and that we could come to a common recognition of what's at stake. And we could begin to say, what would it take mm -hmm. for us to do this together? Um, that's, that's the emerging future. Mm -hmm. And we have a deep conviction. <laughs> my, this is a sidebar, but my, when we were writing the book, and my husband and I will never write a book together again. I actually wanted to talk to you about that. We're, we're really partners. glad we did this, but we will never do it again. We enjoy editing each other's work, but we uh -huh. don't write the same piece. And it's really hard to be when you're at 
you know, getting near the end and like he just wanted it done and I wanted changes still made to make it excellent. <laughs> and he right. had done more keyboarding than I had done and I couldn't be a compassionate wife and a fierce author all at the same time and it was very difficult. So anyway, but our we have a wonderful marriage. We've survived it, but we maintain that wonderful marriage by not writing books together again. And um, what we what I would change mm-hmm. even now, he always said I'd want to change it after it was published and on the shelf. He's right. What I would change now is we would say more strongly that it's very difficult for people to imagine themselves a citizen of our global planetary commons Mm -hmm. if they have not had an experience of a micro-commons. That um, uh, Putnam, in his work, found that he could predict the voter turnout in Italy according to the number of choral societies in the community. When I began to have an experience where I realized I make a contribution to something that's bigger than myself and my contribution matters, like in a choral group, mm-hmm. then I can begin to get it that maybe my vote matters yeah. in the United States or Canada or you know, in South Africa. And then I began to realize Ah, I, we matter in this global context, and our contribution and what we do is a part becomes a part then of really getting this connective imagination. Yeah, it's like if you don't understand the container that you're currently in, you're not going to understand something that's even bigger right. than that. So let's create this small container and and let's like learn and understand and be conscious of where we're at, and then. And then we can build the capacity to go beyond it. Right. And as we build the the small container, to find ways of being mindful of what's beyond that container. So, for example, when we gather people at the Whidbey Institute, we almost always say, we are here on behalf. Hmm. We're here on behalf of ourselves. We're here on behalf of our particular interests and communities that brought us together, our businesses, whatever. But we're also here on behalf of our wider society, our wider world, and maybe we're here most of all on behalf of those who can't imagine why we're doing this. You know, <laughs> so um, that sense of connectivity mm-hmm. always being um, present in some way. That's that's good, and it gets back to that um, systems awareness, right? Um, thinking about global warming and how how big of an issue it is but then you talk about Paris and how that was this grounding moment in yes. time where everyone said yes we are connected yes. and this is the common thread so it's almost but it's the largest frame so I think it's the hardest one mm-hmm. to, to actually get everybody on the same page but it may be the one thing that is able to, to kind of disintegrate these boundaries because if you you have to start with the largest yes, frame yes nice otherwise you're doing uh, you know violence and damage yes, to it yes you know so it's how do we create these micro comments with the awareness yes of the largest frame yes which is our environment our yes the globe the earth and yes and and how do we do that in in harmony with one another at least with a conscious awareness of what we're doing and then we can start right 
Right. It's like, how do your wonderful sons begin to get it that when they're cleaning up that park, they're cleaning up the planet? Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't have to get that at the age of five or even mm-hmm. too much at the age of seven, but you can begin to kind of get that. Oh, this is a piece of the planet. We're cleaning mm-hmm. it up. Um, one thing, um, and I'll give my wife credit for coming up with this, but she talks about exposure and experience to the natural world is critical to understanding our impact on a global scale. Yes. So yes. that's what we're trying to do yes. with these partnering groups, and we're trying to get um, primarily kids exposure and experience to nature in their neighborhood, uh-huh. in their backyard, because if they and that's the micro comments mm-hmm. you know let's get them to understand you know what it means to take care of an ecosystem in their backyard and and have it just sort of permeate mm-hmm. you know, naturally mm-hmm. and give them the enjoyment too yeah. of the space so it's not just like hey you got to pull this weed now you got to plant this and we're going to do a hundred of these and then we're going to go home <laughs> right <laughs> you know? right so we're, we're doing uh, mountain bike trails these will uh-huh. be seattle's first mountain bike trails within uh-huh. a, a wooded parkland so this is you know we see junior high kids coming out of school at two thirty, and just like a stream or a river of people coming down and they're going right down the street past oh. the woods oh huh yes and, and they're not going in because it's not safe and welcoming and there's not really a reason for them to be there there's no invitation there yeah. give them the invitation and then get them to enjoy it yes you know, if, if they're having fun... And mountain bike is the way they do that. And that it's One a perfect opportunity for, right. for them to do that. There's a, a Bike Works, which is a local nonprofit right oh. there. You know, nice. They already run mountain biking programming, but they have to bust everybody to Issaquah. Oh, my goodness. So we've got the it's, perfect... It's, <laughs> we just need Seattle Parks to open this one last environmental... Okay. <laughs> well, you're, you're making the connections. And sometimes it really is hard work mm-hmm. making those connections that it requires new thinking, it requires changes in policy, it requires people being able to have a bigger picture, Mm -hmm. and that takes learning over time, and so much of what leadership in our time is requiring is the management of a learning process, Hmm. and a management of a collective learning process. And so, I mean, I don't particularly like the word management, but it's the holding, orchestrating, so forth, a learning process that moves all of us in ways that we didn't always plan to go. I love that because there's so many um, there's so many leadership books out there. Right. You know, they're coming out every day. There's right. another leadership book, and you know, it, it, it's always like the the quick hits. Right. Right. To becoming a leader, but it's very egocentric and it's very much about like how can you perform better. Right. You know, and achieve certain things. Things, and on very tight timelines. Right. And part of what we're having to do is take both in, take into account both a sense of profound urgency mm-hmm. and the long view. And that's a kind of paradoxical uh, capacity 
that we have to get better at mm-hmm. and uh, figure out what that really means for us. And we found that many people who, particularly more mature people, who have the capacity for commitment to the common good were able to hold paradox. They were able to hold ambiguity. They were able to uh, wait. They were able to have both urgency and this sense of a very long view, Mm -hmm. knowing that what they care about wouldn't be fully realized in their lifetime, that the things they worked on, someone would get the kudos for it on another watch, you know, (laughs) and, and, and it's very, very hard. And so we have to find ways of celebrating the small steps, um, recognizing it's part of a larger story. So how do you do that? Like to an organization, because you know, when you talk to organizations, they're on like, you know, these quarterly time frames. Okay. Well, one of the, we really have a problem that Wall Street, which has so much power in our society, works on quarter mm-hmm. um, and, you know, sets the benchmarks and so forth. And so, you know, we have to begin to get smarter than that mm-hmm. and find ways of resisting that and find ways of telling another story. And, um, but it's very, hard, not only in those who are particularly working with those dynamics, but everywhere in our society. We look look for instant everything. Mm -hmm. And part of what has eroded the commons, which is around, for instance, eating together, um, you know, we eat on the run. We eat standing up. (laughs) We eat, you know, alone at some kind of a bar. Um, And we have the microwave that Right. you know, instantly fixes everything. So beginning to question um, some of those patterns that are in many ways technologically driven, but they're also driven by a kind of assumption that who we are individually is more important than who we are collectively. Mm-hmm. And it's not an either or. It's just that we're such social creatures that the health of the whole community affects my health, whether we're talking about tuberculosis or we're talking about how we eat. And um, and our society has placed enormous value on the individual, mm-hmm. which is not wrong at all. Mm-hmm. But when the value of every precious human life begins to eclipse um, the collective and mm-hmm. begins to become individualism, versus the value of the individual, then, then we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, is that, do you think that's where we're at right now? Well, I think it's where we've been. Okay. And um, whether, I think there's indication, partially because of what you're doing in your park, that that is beginning to shift. It's mm-hmm. not shifting everywhere, but there's more and more recognition, I think, that we have to work together, that our um, biggest challenges cannot be addressed by any individual alone, can't be addressed by any single sector alone, Mm -hmm. that we really need cross-boundary and shared um, imagination. And we're finding that many of our most successful companies or political endeavors or so forth is really a story of um, people who are figuring out how to work together. Mm. 
And is this something that you teach in leadership? Do you take in the commons framework and yes. weave it into <laughs> yes. everything? As yes. Like, okay, this is... Yes. The combination of the commons and that our generations have been asked to live in this huge hinge time mm-hmm. in history. And that the big question is how now must we live? Mm-hmm. And so that's the question of the new commons. And what does the new commons look like? How does it work? And to do that, we have to understand how the commons has worked forever Mm -hmm. in the story of our species and then translate that into what that means now. Mm -hmm. And that does require within each of us a kind of kindling of a common fire. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're working with organizations. Are you also working with kids? Um, more indirectly than directly, except mm-hmm. um, except we have grandchildren. And so we're very much involved with um, four wonderful little beings between the ages of three and seven. And, um, and you see it all there. And our hearts thrill when... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Maeve says, I love nature, and when we see Hannah being this extraordinary imaginative artist and writing narrative and mm-hmm. story that um, she lives in New York City, and when she would walk to school as, um, you know, a six-year-old, she's stopping and having conversations with the mannequins in the window, and she's made up stories for all of them, and they have backstories and so forth. So when you uh, see that kind of imagination in play, and then you really want to nurture that, mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, Hazel and Benjo come along, and and they're doing their own versions of, right. you know, having, and then we're thrilled that, they're having wonderful parents who mm-hmm. are trustworthy and who are helping them be little agents of their, um, you know, own creativity, uh, creativity and life and yeah. so forth. And and it just makes your heart sing because you know mm-hmm. what that means. But we have to hold at the same time the very sobering question of what kind of world in light of climate change, in light of political discord, and like, you know, what kind of world will these precious ones have? Mm -hmm. And that's being asked of us here in the Northwest. It's being asked in Syria, and it's being asked in Africa, and, Mm -hmm. you know, South Asia, and in Europe, and everywhere, that um, what is going to be the health of the commons Mm -hmm. for the future in which they can flourish and thrive and make their own contributions Mm -hmm. as we move forward. One of the interesting things and one of the greatest things about being a parent is experiencing that uh, imagination, that kind of unbridled imagination from those kids. And then it, it sort of, for me, it awakens that same sort of um, imagination that that I had at their age, you know, it right, re- right. awakens it as right. an adult. It's almost like I get to be a kid again because right. I get to play with them in that right. way. And um, and it, it seems like the qualities 
of imaginative play as a kid are similar to what's required of us as adult now to kind of re-enter those frames because if you have questions that you can't everybody wants a straight answer but there is no straight answer and that's where the tension comes in you need imagination right and you need to get creative right and and you need to see what emerges from the conversation but you have to enter into the conversation to actually have it Yes, two things. My my stepdaughter Kate says of Larry, her father, that part of why he's a good grandfather is because he hasn't ever totally forgotten what it was like to be a child, <laughs> and that's what you're talking yes. about. You know that that uh, that can come alive, and um, the the other piece around that is that um, we not only need to be individually curious. Mm-hmm but we need communities of imagination. And one of the things that I think that um, I'm seeing now, which began with Common Fire, but see it more profoundly, is that our world is now so complex Mm -hmm. and discerning um, moral ethical judgments is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, the work is hard in many ways that if people do not have a community of shared imagination, that um, it's just too hard. And that they will kind of slip back into patterns that I've described as having busyness as an alternative to meaning and consumerism as an alternative to worthy purpose. And cynicism becomes a pass for sophistication and entertainment and or drug abuse becomes an alternative to reality because reality seems too difficult. So we need each other. We need the commons if we're going to be able to sustain what we know Mm -hmm. about a connected world, about having to make complex choices that are not easy and aren't always perfect. And um, having to give up that, um, you know, I'm a good person. Well, yeah, I'm also a complicit person. So how do we, you know, how do we hold that together? And we only hold it together by being together. Mm -hmm. And so we need communities of imagination and uh, comfort and challenge and commitment and able to hold it for the long haul. What are, uh, can you give examples of communities of imagination that you found? Well, ideally, higher education would be a community of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and communities of faith would ideally be communities not of fixed dogma, but of ongoing imagination in response to who are we and how are we to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think we find in some artistic communities, of Mm -hmm. course, and I imagine what you're doing is you're creating a neighborhood community of imagination. Mm -hmm. What can this place be? Uh, Who are we together? Um, What do we care about? Mm -hmm. What are priorities? So far, all of those are um, questions that require us to compose a response mm-hmm. by, as an act of imagination. So wherever we see people working on an edge, I, I listen a lot to artists and how they work, and artists are willing to work on an edge of what is and what could be, and on the edge of what they don't quite know how to do. 
and um, have a lot of skill and craft, but they're always pushing, pushing the edge. And so one of the questions I often ask is, what is the edge that beckons you? you know? um, and I think we do see people who are teaming up together and saying, this is an edge we're working on. Mm -hmm. Wow, I really like that. Because mm. um, you're working on the edge. I think so. I mean, I want, I want to be there. I mean, that's, that's why I'm here sitting with you. Yeah. Uh, and I also feel like my my path has given me enough information and I've seen enough where it doesn't make sense to go any other way. It's like I can't unsee what I've already seen. <laughs> okay, you've now brought us to the seventh chapter okay, we're of here. Common Fire, here we go. where the main message is that we found that people, we would ask them why they're living the way they're living, mm -hmm. And um, they would tell us pretty much what you just said. They would say, I can't not. Mm -hmm. See, and you're saying, I can't not live the way I'm living. I can't go back to doing or do the things that mm -hmm. I see other people are doing. And it's because you have been able to pay attention and compose a sense of reality and you're trying to live your life aligned with reality. Mm -hmm. And you still have to figure out the economics of how does your family work and mm -hmm. so forth. And you and your wife are married young or are partnered up in that. And how does it work for your kids and so forth. No easy answers. But you're saying, I want to be aligned with reality. I want to be aligned with an emerging future. I want to be aligned with the future my kids are going to live in. Mm -hmm. and that there's a gap. And we often say in leadership that we know that we're in adaptive, ter generative territory when there's a gap between what is and what could be. Mm. And the willingness to live in that gap is, um, you know, the courageous choice of our time. Is there a chapter eight? <laughs> What's in that chapter? <laughs> well, we've been having it. We we skipped over chapter six, and that's the chapter that um, we said to people we interviewed. We said, you know, if we tell the story of your lives and you just all come off as somehow perfect saints who've led these exemplary lives, um, we said this is not going to be a useful book. Yeah, it's unrelatable. And so we asked. And we then had to really struggle with how to get kind of the tender underside of human motivation and so forth. And through what um, turned out to be a meaningful process, we brought together 20 of the people we had already interviewed, and we told them our dilemma. And we said, you know, you are motivated by more than what's here. And they read their interviews. They read each other's interviews. And then they began to tell us. And... Sometimes they were motivated by um, life experiences that had made them angry, mm -hmm. and they had learned to channel that anger in ways that were productive. Sometimes they had been wounded in some kind of way, and they had learned through their own ongoing healing process something about how, how to be healing in our world. Sometimes they had... Um, uh, had experiences of um, 
of seeing others, you know, suffer in some kind of way that had um, helped them to um, identify then suffering of their own. That so we got uh, one, uh, one woman who was a Catholic sister, uh, vowed religious. She looked back and she realized she had gone into the convent because of her father's life. And he had been alcoholic, but he, um, she said, I realize now he was an artist who couldn't find work. And she said, you know, she had tried to be a good girl to kind of redeem her father's life. A very complicated, mm -hmm. you know, kind of story. Doing extraordinary work on the edge of what church might be and become. But um, there was a very tender story mm -hmm. there that had been a part of the formation of her soul that was not some simple religious vow. So um, anyway, the um, uh, so we we looked at that, and you know that's a part of the whole story. Mm -hmm. I mean that we're complicated beings, and we're tugged and pulled and swayed in ways we're conscious of and not conscious of yet, and um, are conscious of, and um, we have to hold all of that with a tenderness and a respect in each other and know that at the end of the day we're all muddling through right. but we want to do that with the you know best that we are and can become mm -hmm. and that's what you're working at it's interesting when you talk about these past stories that these they were able to or, or there might even be sufferings in that in the story that you just shared that they're they're able to make sense enough of or process just process enough yeah. where they were able to take some sort of suffering and turn it into motivation for a way forward. And you know Mary's work at at the Seattle School, the whole like first year is really like understanding your story, okay. you mm -hmm. know, so that you don't carry that, that with you and, and project it onto somebody <laughs> right. else, especially if they're your right. clients in the right. therapy office, right? You know, right. but. Um, do you think that that is something that's unique to the people that you interviewed in the book? Or is that something that everyone has the capacity to, to do? Is oh, everyone has the capacity to do that. They don't always have the opportunity hmm. to become self-reflective and aware and pay attention to why Why do I think this way? Why do I behave this way? Why, why did I take this path rather than another path? Hmm. And maybe at an earlier time, I said I was doing this for this reason, but maybe at a later time I realized, well, that was true, but there was also these other reasons. And relative to what I said before, I would say that people don't become committed to the common good only because they've known suffering or seen suffering. Um, but sometimes, for instance, one person um, found when she went to college, she had been in, in girls' schools, and she went to college, and her boyfriend didn't think she could do math because she was a woman. And she was appalled. And she became very dedicated to women's education. Well, mm -hmm. she didn't purposefully suffer 
you know, not doing math or, but she saw that others did and Mm -hmm. that that was something that then drew her because she just thought it was so ridiculous. And there were those kinds of, those kinds of stories too, where they had certain strengths among some of the African-American people that we interviewed. um, They had as children, um, in a couple of instances, they had really been protected from the worst of uh, racial bias and until their parents had been able to have them in situations where there, there were buffers. Mm-hmm. And then when they grew up and could not be buffered anymore, they were strong enough to be able to engage it mm-hmm. in a different way than if they had been crushed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So um, lots of nuance in yeah. terms of how but that all happens. there's opportunity for self-reflection for some of these people to make sense of this and process it. And to be cheated out of becoming a reflective person is just a great sorrow. Mm-hmm. Just a great sorrow. I think about that, um, that buffer Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm thinking about my kids, yeah, and I'm and I'm also thinking about the story and the image, mm-hmm. you know, that that they're going to take with them, and how um, one of the, one of the things that we're pretty vigilant about doing is like keeping them away from these devices that are going to give them um, who knows what kind of images or what kinds of stories. It's totally unpredictable, but. As a parent, I'm, I'm, that's so like relevant for for me in in this time, especially with these kids like prior to adolescence, where it's like exactly. there's so much of the world can be accessed, you know, through a device and through this window that can create a story that just one um, experience can in, inform them in a way that they're gonna right take with them the rest of their life right. and. You can't unsee those things either. Right, right, exactly. But what you're doing is you're paying attention to the images planted at the heart's core Mm -hmm. because we find that those images do endure across time. And so you're saying in these very formative years that you want to be mindful as a parent as to what you're child is imbibing in terms of images and you want there to be a core of positive images that serve them well when they then have to adjudicate Mm -hmm. in a world of of images over which you have absolutely no control ultimately Mm -hmm. though you hope you'll be a steadying presence as they discover that world Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's my hope is that they'll they'll have that core. They'll have the core enough so that when we release them into the world, that right, you know, they'll be able to emerge into something that they're that uh, is meant strong and curious yeah. and compassionate and courageous. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you brought it back. Well, yeah. uh, I feel like we should wrap this up. Um, you. The last question I want to ask you is just in and around hope, because um, I'm sensing a lot of hopelessness, you know, with so much chaos, and um, I see a lot of people in my community um, coming kind of untethered. Yeah. In in this time, so I guess there's two questions: Are you hopeful? Mm. And where does your hope come from? 
Okay. Um, speaking for me personally, um, it's been said that it is the nature of human beings to hope that it's built into us. So we are hardwired to do that. But when we become critical thinkers, we are haunted by the question of, but is there viable hope? So some of us are beginning to talk about um, a quality of hope that is not dependent on assured outcome. And that becomes a matter of a combination of self-definition. Do I want to be a person who lives the consequences of a hopeless life? Or do I want to be a person who lives something that we call hope? I have a colleague who says that our, who has lived with uh, chronic illness, and uh, Julie Naris has written a wonderful book called Apprentice to Hope, and she says it's like any other relationship. You have to care for it. And one of the things that I know is very true for myself is that whatever I hold and experience that would be conventionally recognized as hope is dependent upon um, faith, not blind faith, um, not pie-in-the-sky faith, not Pollyanna kind of faith, not kind of um, narrow religious dogma, um, but... um, as a meaning maker, <laughs> trying to make sense of the very largest field our imagination can embrace. Um, I do believe that we all dwell in a mystery that we apprehend and do not fully comprehend, and that there are forces at work that are um, more than I can fully imagine and that those forces um, are creative of life, and that um, my joy is to be found in trying to align myself with life itself um, and open to that and curious about that larger mystery that we all share. And I do experience in my own life that there is something that I would call a larger orchestration of life that um, I do and don't comprehend, but that uh, that works on behalf of life. And that um, that's where I rest hope that as we think about the future and right now, we can make some pretty accurate and dire predictions. Um, but I also know that both good and bad, there will be surprises. And so my work is to be aligned 
with positive possibility, but not naive. Mm-hmm. And to try to act and practice and live and dwell in ways that when I think about the children coming on, that they're going to have the best possible. And my duty is to um, be an agent of the creation of that mm-hmm. rather than the alternatives. Well, it's great to hear, especially since you've been in this work for a while, mm-hmm. that there have been surprises along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the surprises give me hope. Yeah. The hope for a surprise. Yes, right. Right? Right. And it all seems to just be so mundane. Yes. And um, and when the forces seem to be arrayed against it. Yeah. And I think part of that are the distortions of our narrative and mm-hmm. common story and what we call media and so forth, that we have so much less access to the wonder of our world than we do to the suffering and chaos. And I have often spoke of that I think the work of our time and the stretch of soul that's asked is that we live at the crossroads of never having known more than we know now about the suffering of our world and never having known more than we know now about the wonder of our world and to hold those two together um, and to act from that place I think is the hard and um, uh, inviting (laughs) Um, and in moments extraordinarily gratifying work of our time Mm -hmm. that's a great place to wrap it up (laughs) okay Um, what are you working on now? Um, well, the big question that I'm asking now is, what is the new narrative? Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, I'm not going to come up with it by myself, but mm-hmm. to pay attention to what's, what's the language, how do we name, and the narrative has to be big enough to go back, what is it, 14.5 billion years mm-hmm. ago to the creation of life itself and then the arc of who we are Mm -hmm. where we're going how um you know what is life up to with us and how do we want to shape that story Mm -hmm. and it's been said that the 21st century will belong to those who can tell the best story of the 21st century Mm -hmm. and so my current question is what's the best story for the 21st century Mm -hmm. Because that's the story by which we'll live and die. Oh, I love it. I've got to get you together with Mary. Oh, would love to. She's uh, <laughs> Her IP is all about rewriting. I'm wondering if she and I have crossed paths somewhere. Probably. I mean, she's been to the Institute. She's Mary led, DeYoung. She's led uh, workshops there. Yeah, see, I feel like I know this name. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so maybe we've met. Anyway, you can. She's rewriting the creation story. Gen- oh, great. Genesis yes. 1. Okay, you know, all right. So well, providing a new narrative because the current one has exactly. been one of dominance exactly. and not interrelatedness. Exactly. Well, so much of the work of the Institute has been around that with Brian Swim, and mm-hmm. she probably yes. knows that, and Thomas Berry, and yep. you know, all of that, and uh, how we're going to bring the scientific story and the various cultural, religious stories into, you know, weave. Mm-hmm 
the story because the science story is critical for us, and um, but it's not mythic enough. It's not right. story. So right, right. so how do how do we do that? And Thomas Berry, um, at the beginning of the Earth and Spirit Conference, which gave birth to the Whidbey Institute um, back in '91, he said. Um, that for the first time, people can come together from all over the world and agree on the creation story. We came from the stars. Mm -hmm. And then he says, but it's not mythic enough. It's not, you know, we don't know how to tell the story with the power mm -hmm. that can save us. Yeah. So it's great she's working on that. Yeah. Tell her I applaud her. <laughs> I will. I'll tell her. And love to be in conversation with her. I'll... Um yeah, I'll, she she actually rewrote um, Genesis one, and that's like the, the final chapter of her IP. Oh, and that's it, great! It's really much. It's very very beautiful. Okay, well, tell, I would yeah. love to see it and tell her that I had the experience uh, years ago at Emory. There was there, there there was a university where there was a thing for juniors in high school summer program going on, and they had you know kids who were sort of best and brightest. And they had the kids who were going to be interested in physics in college. Mm -hmm. And they had them hold, having the Genesis story and then the science story here. And their assignment for the week was to weave them together. And I got to be there the, evaluating the program when they were together when they were reading their stories, you know, I could have wept. Oh, that's interesting. Just to see, you know, 17-year-olds pre-college being invited to this dialogue, you know. One so, that has been so fragmented. Right, right, yeah. Where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, they can reach me at, um, in, at the Whidbey Institute, where I'm a senior fellow. And... Um, yeah. Parks at gmail.com. There it is. Email yeah. Sharon. <laughs> yeah. And also leadership for the new commons. So lots of ways and to do it. And that's leadership for the new for com the commons dot com. Uh, dot org. Leadership for the new commons dot org. Thank you for your work. You're very thank welcome. you for your commitment. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your story. And thank you. I've enjoyed it. You're welcome. We'll do it again. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. That was Sharon Delos Parks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I am so grateful to have had that time with Sharon and to listen to her thoughts and to hear her work so well articulated and so elegantly connecting these ideas together I mean for me it really her work really informs the way that I view the world and and understand the essential the the essential need of of having a micro commons and intentionally creating these micro commons so that we can build the capacity to you know, care for something bigger to have a more expansive view of the world. So I definitely encourage you to pick up her book, Common Fire. And 
in closing, if you want to check out the show notes, they are at lyman.space slash emerging future, L-I-M-E-N dot space slash emerging future. And if you want to donate to the show, you can find the Patreon page at patreon.com slash emerging future. And if you want to come pull some weeds, plant some trees, build some trails with me in Seattle, I'll be out in the woods every first and third Saturday, rain or shine. See you there. Find out more information at chiesty.org, C-H-E-A-S-T-Y dot org. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.